In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you, and through you be happily completed, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Last day. Yay. No. It's been a great joy to be with you all, all week. And, um, and so today, I'm, what I want to accomplish is to go through this last kind of abbreviated slideshow on this third phase, or fourth phase, of history in the timeline. Right, so we did original man, the corruption of original sin, redemption in Christ, and now eschatological man, which refers to where we're going right? and how everything about human and divine love is ordered towards the kingdom of God and how that love will be realized in its fullness in heaven. And so we'll see as we go through this section how everything about this world points to its fullness in the kingdom of heaven. Right, and this will round out the sort of anthropological, theo, the, theological anthropology on which John Paul II's reflection on vocation, celibacy for the kingdom, marriage, and the church's teaching about marriage morality is all based. So at the end of the period, so I'm going to do this, and then I want to talk a little bit about catechesis and the kerygma, um, spiritual life, and then um, point you to some other resources to continue to deepen your reflections as you go forward from today. Right? Because if this week is just like a blip on the radar in your life, and we don't continue to go deeper, it just sort of remains a blip on the radar. And the goal is to continue to go deeper. I've learned more about everything I learned in graduate studies since I've been back from graduate studies than I learned while I was in graduate studies. It was as I started to apply principles and to teach what I had learned that I came to really understand it and internalize it and make it part of my life in a deeper way. And that's the point of any class is we go to a class in order to kind of get formation or form us in a way of thinking and so that that way of thinking then influences and forms us as we move forward. Okay, so a brief overview of what we're going to talk about. Christ's words to the Sadducees. We already talked about Christ's words to the Pharisees. And so now we're going to talk about his words to the Sadducees, which is another group of Jewish believers whose doctrine differed from the Sadducees. Okay, revisiting marriage is a primordial, primordial sacrament. What we mean by spiritualization or divinization, rediscovering the nuptial meaning of the body. Some words from St. Paul. So Christ's words to the Sadducees come from these three places in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. So I'm going to use Matthew 22.
Woe to you, wait, that's 23. On that day, Sadducees approached him saying there is no resurrection. They put this question to him saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up descendants for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no descendants, left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened with the second and the third, through all seven. Finally, the woman died. Now at the resurrection of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had been married to her. Jesus said to them in reply, You are misled because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So the Sadducees go to our Lord and they're trying to trick him into admitting polyandry. Okay, polyandry means one woman married to many men, as opposed to polygamy, which means one man married to many women. Because our Lord had already said to the Pharisees, right, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the body. And so the Sadducees do not. And so they go and say, well, so if there is a resurrection and you can only be married once, what happens at the resurrection? Ha, got you. And so this is where our Lord reflects on the fact that marriage is a vocation for this life and not the next. Okay, marriage is a vocation in this world, but it's not a state of living out love in the kingdom of heaven. He says, in the resurrection, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. So his statement tells us that there is, in fact, a resurrection of the body. And it reveals to us the state of the body after the resurrection. The state of the body after the resurrection. The Sadducees deny the resurrection and believe that the soul dies with the body. But Jesus says to them in response, God is the God of the living, that our souls do not die, but they live and await the resurrection. And Jesus himself, Christ's resurrection, is the ultimate word on the subject. Christ revealed to us that there is, in fact, a resurrection of the body. So when we go back and we reflect on the fact that marriage has always been a sacrament of God's love for his people. When two become one flesh, they participate in God's life-giving covenant. They're a sign of the covenant because God said through all the prophets, I will be a husband to you again. In the resurrection, marriage and conjugal union lose their raison d'etre, which means their reason to be. Okay, when we all enter into the kingdom of God, we will no longer need a sign that points to the kingdom of God because we're experiencing the kingdom of God. 
And so marriage is a vocation which points to the love of Christ and his church. When we say that marriage is a sacrament, it's a sacrament of Christ's love for the church. And so we have this sign in this world that points us to that union between Christ and the church. And then at the end of time, when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, we all participate in that wedding feast of the Lamb. We no longer need the sign. The sign gives way to the reality. So we don't need something here to point us to the reality because we'll be living the reality. The primordial sacrament gives way to the divine prototype. So divine love, again, like is this love in the Trinity. Marriage as the primordial sacrament is an image of God's love in the Trinity. Okay, marriage as a sacrament also points us to this love between Christ and his church. Just as a husband gives himself to his wife, the wife receives that gift, returning the gift of herself, or she entrusts her life to him points to the wedding feast of the Lamb or the wedding of the Lamb in Revelation 19 in which every saint within the communion of saints enters into this relationship with our Lord by which we receive divine life and will live in that perfect state of surrender to Him. That perfect state of entrusting ourselves to Him which will happen in perfect freedom The only motivation in the kingdom of heaven is love. Yesterday we talked about how sometimes we're motivated by fear, sometimes duty, sometimes love. The only motivation in the kingdom of heaven is love. So the only motivation for a saint is love. So Jesus says that we'll be like angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so what does that mean? Does that mean we'll become disincarnated, disembodied spirits, like in Miracle or whatever that movie is? Yes, Wonderful Life. Right, because lots of people still like, live with this idea that a human being who dies becomes an angel. Right? But an angel is a different kind of species. Right? And every angel is its own species. So angels, in fact, don't live in a communion of persons the same way that we can live in a communion of persons, right? Which is really kind of interesting. It's something we don't often think about, right? Every angel is distinct from other angels by their intelligence, right? So if we looked at, like, you have God's love in the Trinity, which is this communion of persons, but then you have angels, and angels just kind of like hang out as their own species in this hierarchy until you get to human beings who live in a communion of persons. Right? Within God, you have three persons with the same nature. We are all persons with the same nature. Every single angel is its own species because it's distinct by their intelligence. Because St. Thomas says, otherwise, if you had two angels of equal intelligence, but they don't have a body to separate them one from another, they would just morph into one person. Kind of like the Star Trek guys. (laughs) 
Right? So the highest, most intelligent angel ever created was Lucifer, right? Because if he rebels from God, then he can be the boss of the rest. Okay, my guardian angel is probably somewhere down here. I hope he's not all the way at the bottom. But even if he is, he's better than me, and he knows more than I know. Okay, man is made from the beginning as male and female in unity of body and soul. Right? We're not disincarnated. We're always a body-soul composite. So even, like we said yesterday, when St. Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit, they, we experience them as being at war, but when we sin, it's the movement of our whole body-soul composite towards the world. When we're in the state of grace, it's the movement of our whole body-soul composite towards heaven. So in heaven, we won't only be a soul. Our bodies will be raised and glorified in an infinitely perfected masculinity and femininity. Okay, we'll be perfected in masculinity and femininity. And John Paul II makes a point of that because our bodies and their masculinity and femininity reveal the fact that we're created for communion with each other. And so there's a significance to masculinity and femininity that go beyond sex and reproduction. So when we are raised in our glorified bodies, we'll be raised with our bodies as male and female. And so there's something more significant to it. Right, so when Bruce Jenner, God willing, experiences the resurrection of the body, he'll be resurrected as a man. And he'll be called Bruce. Okay, it's about communion. Our masculinity and femininity are about communion. The experience of being a body person, right, which we experience in original solitude, is deeper than and prior to the experience of sexual differentiation and the call to communion that we experience in original unity. Okay, again, in this section on eschatological man, we see that progression of I'm created for union with God first and then for communion with another person. We have to be sons and daughters before we can be spouses, before we come become parents. Okay, so that anthropological order is still intact. And that anthropological order is significant. We are body persons, so we'll always be body persons. The experience of being a soul without a body, which would be the faithful departed, before the time of the resurrection is an exception. Right? It's an exception. God holds us in that state of being, which is actually not the state of being of a human person until the resurrection. So sexual difference is the constant sign and summons of the human race to communion. Right? Sexual difference always reminds us that we're called to communion. It always reminds us that we're called to communion. That we're made to be in relationships. And relationships exist between two individuals who are partly the same and partly different. That's what makes them really interesting. You 
know, so this can be a an answer to the question, like, why did God make me a boy and other people girls? Because it reveals the fact that we're called to be in communion with each other. Just very simply. Maleness and femaleness point to more than conjugal life. Okay, when I have sex there, conjugal life. They reveal the fact that we're called to communion and we're called to live out communion in a communion of persons. Right? Love is something that always exists between people in relationship. And we'll reacquire our bodies in their masculinity and femininity. Okay. And at that point, this war will be over. The opposition of body and soul that we experience, that kind of battlefield of the heart, will come to an end. Right? There will not be any constraint and will live in perfect freedom. So the original virginal value of the body will be restored. Those rules that govern relationships from the beginning will govern all relationships in the kingdom of God. So we experience the fullness of freedom. Experience the fullness of freedom. So John Paul II talks about spiritualization and divinization. Okay, spiritualization refers to the fact that the forces of the spirit will fully permeate the energies of the body. And what we'll, ex- we'll experience in ourselves is divine life in us. Divine life in us. This is why the life of grace is actually better than the life of at the resurrection. We were actually better off through our baptism than Adam and Eve were in the beginning because we have divine life in us. The spiritualization will differ essentially and not only in degree from what we experience in earthly life through the sacraments. Okay, so in heaven, there's this completeness to that experience of divine life in us. It's even different from what man and woman experienced from the beginning. Okay. The Holy Spirit permeates the body. We're completely receptive and vulnerable to it. So in the beginning, we could say that man and woman participated in the very humanness of each other. This was a sign that pointed to their call to participate in the very divinity of God. So in heaven, they don't marry because their interpersonal communion will give way to the interpersonal communion with God himself, right? who is the interpersonal communion. This is what all of our relationships are ordered towards. Everything we learn about love in this life is to prepare us to enter into that ultimate communion of life and love in the Trinity in heaven. So the spirit which permeates the body in heaven is not only man's spirit, but God's spirit or the Holy Spirit.
This is what we mean when we say that in heaven we are divinized. It doesn't mean we become gods, but rather that God's life lives in us. And this is the language of the liturgy. So in the liturgy, when the priest adds the drop of water to the chalice of wine, he says, through the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. In the marriage of the Lamb... The penetration and permeation of what is essentially human by what is essentially divine will reach its peak. And God will communicate himself not only to man's soul, but to his whole embodied personhood. So it's the ultimate participation in grace. And the only thing we could point to are the characteristics of Christ's resurrected body which is able to appear to multiple people at the same time. He's able to pass through solid objects. And yet his body is still resurrected with his wounds. And when we're talking about this area of theology, it's mostly speculative theology. So you can read... You know, scholastics who said, everybody will be resurrected as a sphere. Because it's like the perfect shape. It's perfect unity and harmony. So, I don't know if we'll all be spherical or not. I hope not. In the divinizing spiritualization of the resurrection, we'll rediscover this same nuptial meaning of the body in the beatific vision. We meet God face to face, and all our energies are concentrated on receiving the divine gift and reciprocating it through the gift of ourselves to God. All of our energy is concentrated on receiving the divine gift and responding to it. Okay, responding to it. So the ultimate meaning of being a body is that we're created for communion. We're created for eternal communion with God himself. This will be new, but not cut off from our earthly experience of communion. Earthly communion is not cut off, but fulfilled. In the funeral liturgy, in the preface, it says that we believe that with death, life is changed, not ended. And so even now, we experience communion with the communion of saints. So now, Genesis 2.24 has new meaning. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and joins to his wife, and the two become one flesh. In Scripture, they refer to this world, but they also point to the life to come. The ultimate meaning of our creation as male and female is found in our call to incarnate communion with the Trinity and 
through the incarnate Christ. So we have this union with Christ. All right, so this diagram that I'm going to put on the board, I made up, I don't know, a long time ago, when I was teaching in Pius when I first started. So forgive me for its crudeness, but I think it kind of tells us what we're doing. So if we take that Trinity diagram that I always use, and then we're going to kind of blow it up and try to figure out what the community of saints looks like. Right? So it's just an analogy. So you have this relationship that goes from the Father to the Son that we call fatherhood, want the good for you, etc. This response from the Son to the Father that we call sonship or entrustment. The Holy Spirit is that fruitfulness and the space between them. And then we have all these people that go to heaven and they're sort of inserted into the life of the Trinity. And so when we look at the communion of saints, and we're trying to look at it through a relational lens, okay, you have all of those people hanging out in the Trinity, all those people in the communion of saints. They're all in relationship with each other, but primarily they have this relationship with the Son. And so each saint within the communion of saints is in relationship to the son by which they receive divine life and they return the gift of themselves they have to surrender themselves continually to god so each one has this relationship with the son and so in the trinity you have vertical relationship which is this relationship between each person and God and horizontal relationship, which is the communion that they experience with one another in the communion of saints. Okay, and I use vertical and horizontal. Okay, vertical refers to that relationship with God, horizontal or communion with each other. Right, so from the beginning, there was first vertical relation and original solitude, then horizontal relation and original unity. Okay, original nakedness referred to the fact that we are transparent, that we are penetrable, that we're vulnerable, that the body reveals the person. Okay, that that relation, those relations are mediated by our bodiliness. And when we look at that in eschatology, it informs everything else about the life of the church. Right? It informs everything else about the life of the church. Because horizontal communion is the product of vertical communion. It's the fruitfulness of vertical communion. Right? Nobody would have ended up in heaven unless they had that relationship with the God. Unless they have the relationship with the Son. And so the relationship with the Son is prior to the relationship with each other. So when we talk about communion in the church, the communion we experience with each other stems from that relationship each person has with our Lord. And it's because we have the same Father that we become brothers and sisters. Okay, that we become brothers and sisters. So, why does the church build her churches the way she does? Because they emphasize vertical communion 
and draw us into vertical communion, which then bears fruit in horizontal communion. This is why culturally Catholics go to Mass on Sundays and don't talk to anybody. Just talk to Jesus, right? That's what we're supposed to do, right? And, but if it's really fruitful, what would happen is like we would be in communion with our Lord and it would make us want to reach out and meet everybody and have communion and community and invite them to donuts and all that kind of stuff. Right? And so it's important for us to tie these two things together because sometimes we fall into, I'm only in relationship with Jesus. It's just about Jesus. People say, Father, we need more like communion and community activities. And he says, no, we're Catholic. You're just here for the Eucharist. Get the Eucharist and go. So I can go watch TV. All right. Maybe, sometimes. All right, so get the Eucharist and go. Um, and, and in that case, there's the distortion there, all right? There's also a distortion in the other direction where we try to build, like, a community club and we form relationship, but that relationship becomes sort of disconnected from the relationship with God. And so we can come and gather, and we're there to be with each other, and, oh, by the way, Jesus is kind of here too. Right? And there can be a distortion. So keeping the priority of relationship, like that's how we pray. That's how we build our churches. That's how we pray. That's what we believe about the sacraments. Right? It's to keep the priority of relationship. So when people ask, why do they build the Newman Center like that? Right? Well, they built it like that because it emphasizes that it's really about our Lord and to draw us into relation with our Lord which then will result in this fruitfulness in relationship with each other. And sometimes we can just fall too much into like focusing on these relationships with each other without trying to put it back through the lens of the relationship with Christ. Right? So maybe that means every single anti-bullying curriculum should include this element of conversion. Because an anti-bullying curriculum is all about governing rules for how students should treat each other. And maybe it should include this element of conversion. And like, at least make mention of or have that up front. Okay, in heaven we're not cut off from the ones we love. In the eschaton, in heaven we participate in the uncreated relations of the Trinity, the eternal relations of the Trinity, but this participation is adapted to the created communion of persons. The communion of saints, we will be one with divine persons, but also with every human person who responds to the wedding invitation of the Lamb. We'll experience union with God, but also this communion with each other. So we experience the fulfillment of original solitude. We become the perfect partner of the absolute. We come into perfect relationship with God. And then we also have the fulfillment of original unity. And we form a perfect communion or communio personarum, communion with each other. We will all love perfectly. 
Right? So in this sense, every vocation here in this world points to some dimension of eschatological life. Those of us who live virginity for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, we point to that reality that the primary relationship of every single person will be this loving union with Christ. Those who live out the vocation to marriage point to that communion of persons and the communion of saints that will exist for all eternity in the kingdom of heaven. And so both dimensions are revealed by our vocations to love. Both dimensions are revealed by our vocations to love. And it's another place where we just insert these little facts about love when people ask us questions like, what's life like in heaven? Right? What's life like in heaven? We're all in love with our Lord and with one another. Right? So, sister so-and-so, she shows us like, what it looks like to be in love with our Lord alone. You know, Mrs. Sullivan, she shows us what it's like to live in communion with others or any of your names. Or your own parents show us that. This state of eschatological man will be the source of the perfect realization of the Trinitarian order in the created world of persons. Right? The perfect realization of the Trinitarian order. Right? That we are sons and daughters who become spouses in order to, for that love to become fruitful. We participate in perfect unity and distinction. The nuptial meaning of the body will be perfectly personal and communitarian at the same time. Right? So again, this is where I usually give my vocations pitch. So I'm moving on. All right. Before you switch that yep. Side, um, this the whole idea that the son will turn over the throne to his father uh, in Scripture. I guess we're, and the father's, you know, ruling all heaven and earth, but what's the connection with souls, I mean, I know there will be a connection, but this seems to be last, missing a link somehow. I don't know, that I'm not this diagram. It's Where are you trying to go to? Well, what's, what's with the Father? We've got the Spirit, the Lord, and the Son. Okay, does the Son ever do anything apart from the Father? That's what I need to hear you say. Okay, Nothing. He never does anything apart from the Father. So would these, these souls then be, I guess... If you're in union with the Son, you're in union with the Father. Because both the Son and the, king, the souls in the kingdom of heaven have a body, that's why we can have God as our Father. Right? The way we pray as a church is to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Okay, To the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. Or in the Holy Spirit. So, like, the reason that I put it this way... Okay, we will find out how exactly it is. But because the person of the Trinity like work in this hierarchical order of relation, and also because like the way to salvation is through Christ, and in order to like understand how the Trinity works together in our own lives. Okay, because like there is this sort of distortion that like I pick my favorite person of the Trinity and that's my one. Sister's just laughing at me, right? But it's true. Like some people, like they, 
pray only to the Father. Some people pray only to Jesus. Some people pray only to the Holy Spirit. And some people don't pray to any of them. They only go through the Blessed Mother. And so, like, there's this communion. We're in union with all three persons of the Trinity. And one does never acts apart from the other two. Yeah. So, through the small white light, we become part of the big white light. Yes. Exactly. Right. Through your union with the Son, you come into relation with the Father. Right. Because we're sons in the Son. That's what the fathers of the church always say. You are sons in the Son. Right. We become adopted children of God. But we become adopted children of God through our relationship with Christ. When Christ speaks, he says, like, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Right? Everything I've received from the Father, I've given to you. And so, like, it's Christ who mediates that relationship with the Father. All right? So even in the kingdom of heaven, like, he will still mediate that relationship with the Father. Right? But we won't experience it like I'm with Jesus and the Father just, like, he hangs out in the lounge watching sports. It'll be, you'll be in union. I mean, we don't really know how it is, but this would be more consistent with like the way that we experience it here and now and point us to that like need to surrender ourselves to our Lord. Okay, original virginal value of the body is restored. We'll experience perfect integration of body and soul, no contradiction between virginity and communion. Okay, we won't need sex or conjugal life to experience the fullness of communion in the kingdom of heaven. The resurrected nuptial meaning of the body will correspond perfectly to both man and woman's creation in the image of God and to the fact that this image is realized through the incarnate communion of persons. So this eschatological communion of persons will be a completely new experience, but it won't be alienated from the original and historical dimension of the procreative meaning of the body and sex. So as we enter in the communion of persons, it will be new, but not alienated from our experience here in this world. Our experience in this world points to the fullness that we'll experience in heaven. The meaning of the body will be revealed when man and woman rediscover in their glorified bodies the perfect freedom of the gift. And that will nourish each of the communions which make up the great community of the communion of saints. Right? The freedom of the gift is lived out in all of those relations in heaven. So what does this mean about us? It means that marriage did not determine definitively the original and fundamental meaning of the body or of being male and female. Marriage and procreation give a concrete reality to that meaning in the dimensions of history, but earthly marriage is not our end, but it's preparation for the heavenly marriage to come. It's preparation for the heavenly marriage to come. So in the section on virginity for the sake of the kingdom, John Paul II reflects on how right after Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees where he says... Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Then his disciples say, well, if that's the case, it's better to just not get married at all. Jesus says, this isn't for everyone, but for those to whom it has been given. 
and says, some forsake marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Right? But if we forsake marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, we're not like, dispensed from living out the communion of persons. We're not dispensed from living a vocation of love. In fact, like, virginity for the sake of the kingdom is only fruitful when it's a vocation to love. Right? When it's a vocation to love. It can't be a vocation to bachelorhood. It's my spiritual director tells me all the time. It's like, you're not a bachelor, which means you can't do whatever you want. Because if you live like a bachelor, you're just going to like crank out work all day long because you have the time to crank out work all day long, but everything you do is about your relationship with our Lord. You can't lose your relationship with our Lord because then everything else becomes just a job. Spiritual direction becomes psychology or merely counseling. Religion class becomes an academic exercise and not a process of conversion. So St. Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians fifteen forty two. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown corruptible, it is raised incorruptible. It is sown dishonorable, it is raised glorious. It is sown weak, it is raised powerful. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual one. So too it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, earthly, the second from heaven. Okay, and St. Paul goes through and he juxtaposes the body here and the body there. So he synthesizes these key words about Christ, about our origin, history, and destiny. We live in a tension between the poles of the first and the last Adam. Right? The first Adam was created, and then we have this distortion, salvation, until there's this last Adam in the person of Christ. Since we bear the image of the first Adam, we're also called to bear the image of Christ. In our baptism, we're called to bear the image of Christ and to love as Christ loves. Already in creation, our humanity bears the potential to receive Christ, just as a bride bears in herself the potential to receive her bridegroom. We did that yesterday. So right now, everything that we do is about preparation for the kingdom of heaven. To live out the image of God in our lives, and to look forward to that life to come. And so I sort of have living up to the image. Original man, our reflections on the original unity of men and women, original solitude, it showed us who we're called to be. And it gives us a point of reference for what it means to be a human being. This section on eschatological man is about like our goal, where we're going, because we all want to get to heaven. 
because we all want to get to heaven. Which is something that we should constantly be putting in front of ourselves. That this is our goal. This is what I'm striving for. I'm striving to love like God loves and participate in that love in the kingdom of God. I want to get to heaven. I gave a homily on this a few months ago about how I haven't thought about wanting to go to heaven in a really long time. Because a lot of times all I want to do is get through the day. Like, I got to get through this day. And I don't always think about I want to get to heaven. When I was a kid, I really wanted to get to heaven. But this is part of the distraction in our lives. We don't take time to reflect on what we've heard. People go to Mass on Sundays. They don't, have, they don't take time to reflect on, okay, what, did, what just happened? What did Father say? You need silence to be able to reflect. We need silence to reflect. And we live in a world that hates silence. We can't live in silence. I was good at living in silence in high school, and then I got bad at it at some point. But I remember my first college roommate, the guy could not stand silence. We'd get back to the room, and he'd be drumming on his desk all the time and talking to me all the time. And I was just like, I just need to be quiet for a little bit. Or people who always need noise, or they always need the radio on, they always need the TV going. And it fills up and distracts us from listening to the voice of God in our hearts or even just reflecting on what our Lord has done. Right? Learning to love as God loves takes place in that context of historical man. It takes place in, the, in our own life. Our life is about entering into that school of love. Father Gately calls it the school of trust. Like when he reflects on salvation history, he calls it the school of trust. You know, all of salvation history was the school of trust for the people of Israel. They have to learn how to trust God so that they can entrust themselves to Jesus when he comes. But our own lives are the school of trust. Right? This is the school of trust. Anytime we're challenged about who we are, about who God is, it's the school of trust. It's our Lord trying to teach us to entrust our lives to him. The challenge is the sufferings of our life. It's the school of trust. We're in that we find our story in the story of salvation as the people of Israel sort of like trust God, uh, get proud, fall back, don't trust him, trust him. But we're constantly trying to move forward and grow in our ability to entrust our lives to our Lord. Right? If we're already there, then you're all saints already. Good job. You know, most of us aren't already there. Because if we were already there, we would have perfect peace all the time in our life. We wouldn't worry about things. We wouldn't worry about how am I going to get my lesson plans done before September. We wouldn't worry about those things if we completely trusted our Lord. Okay, so that's the end of the eschatological man slides. Um, another like, point that I've always found to be helpful is going back, I'm going to go back, and sister, this is probably another reason why I uh, like to use the diagram in the way that I do. Because when people lose somebody, we often feel they're just inaccessible to us. And I can't get my slide to come back up. Oh. That's why. Escape. 
should pop up somewhere. I'm going to go over here. Continue recording. Sure. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to go back there. So when I was um, when I was in the seminary, I had this realization that a lot of my vocation had to do with wanting to like this loss of my mom. And there was one day I was in adoration, and uh, and I just sort of went through the logical progression, which is a little more advanced than my seven-year-old progression that led me to I should become a priest because all priests go to heaven. And um, and I was in Eucharistic adoration, and I started to reflect on the fact that you know every single soul in heaven is looking at Jesus. Like everyone in heaven is looking at Jesus's face. And when we're here on earth and we have the opportunity to go to Eucharistic adoration, we're looking at Jesus' face. And the Jesus who is on the altar is the same Jesus that's in heaven. It's the same Jesus. And so when I'm in Eucharistic adoration and I'm looking at the face of Christ, I'm looking at the same Christ that my mother is looking at in the kingdom of heaven. And if he somehow was able to make himself transparent, then I'd be able to look at my mother. And it's precisely the Eucharist that allows us to believe that we can still be in union with our loved ones who have died and gone to heaven. That they still have access to our lives. It's because of the Eucharist that we believe our Deceased loved ones have access to our lives and can know what's going on in our lives, can intercede for us in our lives. And I never realized it was because of the Eucharist until I went to Army Chaplain School and I have a friend who's a Southern Baptist who's a great friend. And I love this guy. And, uh, but he was talking to me about his grandmother who had died. And he's like, I miss my grandma so much and I especially miss her prayers. Which just seemed to ring strangely in my ear. But he really believed that she was in heaven and could no longer pray for him because there's this gap with nothing to bridge it between heaven and earth. But why would he believe that that gap can be bridged when he doesn't believe in the bridge, which is the Eucharist? And we can find great consolation there in recognizing that when Jesus is present, he's present, but so is everyone else who's united with Jesus. That when we receive the Eucharist, we're in communion with Jesus. And that communion with Jesus is the communion of the communion of saints as well. And so that truth can also be an effective pastoral truth to pass on, especially when students bring up their deceased loved ones. To know that in the Mass specifically, or when you go to adoration specifically, it's a time that you have an opportunity to spend time with that deceased loved one in communion with our Lord. Right? Because the communion we have with each other stems from each individual's communion with Christ. Right? It goes back to that truth. Okay, so that's my little pastoral tidbit on eschatological man, and we'll take a break. And, uh, and when we come back... We'll talk about kerygma and catechesis. Thanks. Mm-hmm.